0: To the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world.
1: Welcome. This is Cup of Joe, where we explore all things Restoration history. So grab a cup of coffee and join me, your host, Karen Peter, as we visit with today's guest, David Howlett. Dr. Howlett is a professor of religious studies at Kenyon College in Central Ohio. He's trained as a historian of religion in America, including Mormonism and Native American religion. He co-authored a Mormonism, The Basics, in 2016, and Kirtland Temple, A Biography of a Shared Mormon Sacred Face, 2014 and also he has written um, a text called uh, the community of christ in india he is a member of our community of christ church historian team and i need to ask at this point how do you prefer to be addressed dr howlett or professor howlett or what how would you like to be addressed today in our interview
2: David is fine, actually. So my students have to call me professor, but not not my friends. Church okay.
1: <laughs> well, let's go Let's go with David then. So David, we're so glad that you can be with us today from Ohio. I know classes have started. It's a busy time for you. So thank you for taking some time out. Before we begin, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, since you're part of the church historian team, people would be curious as how that came to be.
2: I'm an eighth-generation member of Community of Christ. That means that my earliest ancestors were adults converted in western New York in about late 1830, and they kept moving west further and further and further, and their children then became RLDS in the 1850s in Illinois and then later Western Iowa. This is a really old RLDS story for one of the lines of my family. In the 1980s, my parents left the church and over women's ordination and what they saw as a process of liberalization in the church, And as a young adult in my 20s, I came back to the church. As a young adult, then first through meeting people like Charmaine Shvala-Smith and Tony Shvala-Smith and Andrew Bolton and others, going through a process of change myself, eventually uh, reactivating my membership as I was baptized as an eight-year-old in 1986. And then I reactivated that membership at age 24. So I'm now 40 years old. So that was now 16 years ago. From there, I worked at Community Christ Historic Sites Kirtland Temple as a guide in particular and then I began teaching students there for about 12 different summers and I did three summers in Nauvoo to concurrent with Kirtland those three summers but so I was been long involved with church history and community of Christ and long involved too with um, allied organizations like the John Whitmer Historical Association and the Mormon History Association where different church history folks that are interested will congregate and present and talk about church history. So, and it's also what I do for a living in American religious history. I, I have focused on community of Christ, uh, which is sometimes a hard sell, but I always make the, the case that it's important for this wider academic audience. So that, that's what I do.
1: And part of what you do, uh, David, has been an enormous amount of research and writing about how community of Christ expanded in the subcontinent of uh, India, and also opened in the 60s and 70s. So why did this topic, why did India, like, why India, David?
2: I think most academics like to tell some kind of coherent story about how interest in one area naturally gave rise to an interest in another. And in almost all cases, that's really not true. <laughs> it's, <laughs> really, it's really kind of like accidental things that happen lead us to study things and if there's an accident in all of this i was finished my first book on kirtland temple or was finishing it publishing it up and then in that year be like that'd be 2013 yes be 2013 andrew bolton who at that time was the apostle for asia approached me with the idea of going to india in the summer of 2014 and collecting oral histories of church members in anticipation of the 50th anniversary of the church, which would be celebrated then in February at their church conference in 2015. So that was something that I knew very little about in terms of Indian church history, but something that I felt like I couldn't say no to that. (laughs) So I thought, yes, go to India for a month, collect oral histories. So that's how I initially got interested in it. And then I tried reading in preparation for that trip. It was hard teaching at the same time. I wish I knew then what I know now. I could have asked far better questions. But I did spend a month then in India, first in Tamil Nadu, which is a large Indian state in the south where there's a large community Christ congregation, and in Andhra Pradesh where there's about two dozen congregations that are Pentecostal-like. And then in uh, the state of Odisha, sometimes seen, uh, spelled as Orissa, that's the old spelling, R's and D's in Oriya, which is the state language, sound very similar and almost interchangeable. So Orissa or Odisha, uh, and that's where I spent about two and a half weeks of that trip, which is in the Odisha hill, Odishan hills of the Eastern Ghats, which is where the majority of our trip members in India are concentrated. We're talking about, on paper, there's only about 8,000. That's not real. In reality, there are 20,000. It has everything to do with how people are counted. And in almost all cases, how you count, you count far more than actually exist as church members. It's exactly the opposite in India uh, in terms of like how people are counted and how baptisms are recorded. And it's also about state laws about baptism, which make people very cautious about taking that next step mm-hmm. um, and being very careful about baptisms.
1: That's a difficult thing for folks in um, the Western countries to understand that because we have so many people on the books and yet so few people who actively participate. And so for us to understand not just the reverse, as you've explained it, but also the reasons for that are really um not part of our awareness. So I appreciate you bringing that up. We have that in other nations as well. Most church members, I would say, and um, people who are friends of the church don't know a lot about this area of our story, not our geographic area, but this time period. It's not as quirky and odd maybe as the story from the 1830s and 40s, which has all of this shared history with from the LDS Church. But it is a huge part of what shaped and formed modern community of Christ. So as we go through telling the story, I hope we can explore that a little bit. It wasn't just our LDS church expansion. It was a community discipleship exemption, especially as we had to, um, what I call, face our demons. And we'll talk about that later when we get into the issue of polygamy. So you said that you came across this in an accidental kind of way, this uh, moving into sharing about India. And as I tried to read a little bit to prepare for today, it sounds to me like church contact in India in general happened in an accidental Kind of way with someone who was ill and went to the hospital—is that where we start, or is there another place?
2: Oh, we we can start in that place. So I I like to think of it actually starting before then, because I think the way we sometimes narrate church history can become a story of missionaries and missionaries going out and doing things. And while that's true, and they help to serve as catalysts, I think. Um, a, sp- a point where I like to start thinking about it are the kinds of transformations that people who become converts themselves are undergoing in their lives, and how then those stories intersect with what happens with missionaries. Um, so you're referring to G.S. Chawla, mm-hmm. who was a uh, uh, first a Sikh who was a convert to Christianity and who, in some ways, began. Uh, looking for someone to sponsor his missions, and he was looking for someone to sponsor his full-time job as a missionary. I mean, he was reaching out to many different people, um, different denominations, and ours happened to be one of them. We could start the story, which I'm doing right now, with him. <laughs> but I also think I think it's significant to say people aren't going to respond at all unless there's something first that in some ways prepares them or that they're looking for something And um, so where I would start would be somewhere like um, a village like Mudagutta, which is uh, traditionally thought of as the first church village in the state of Odisha. Um, And by village, the whole village joins. So in Mudagutta, what you have are people who are Sora. They're classified by the Indian nation state as an ST, a scheduled tribe. That's a British colonial designation that the Indian government carries over. And they're seen as today talked about as Adivasis, which means indigenous. A highly contested term in India about can you have people who are indigenous in India? The nation state today wants to contest that because that means that other people are, are not indigenous. But nevertheless, they are classified as scheduled tribes. They live in the highlands. And for centuries, they had a different relationship with people in the Valleys. By the time we get into the 1940s, the Indian nation state, with its processes of taxation and other things, has increasingly reached its tendrils into these villages. And the resulting relationships are in some ways semi-feudal, in which you have average Sora people, who their religion you could describe as animistic, but... That's a generalization. Part of the Sora traditional notion, and Kui are very closely related, by the way. Kui or Kond are the other tribe that they have lots of church members from. Well, the Sora believe that after the dead, traditionally, die, their spirits then are something, they move on to a different stage of the afterlife, and their spirits are dangerous. They join a class of people that they were killed by. So if they're killed by a leopard, they join a class of people killed by leopards. And all illness is seen as coming from contact with these people who have been dead, uh, their spirits. And they will attack people and literally eat their spirit. And the way then to propitiate individuals is to offer sacrifices to them so that they'll be sated by those sacrifices. And Sora had, uh, sh- we could call them shamans, but they're ritual specialists. Taedongs are what they are in Sora who would mediate the conversations between the living and the dead. And the dead would then say things living like, why have you neglected me? You haven't fed me. And they'd be like, and they'd start arguing. It'd be a dialogue back and forth. Piers a British anthropologist, has studied this in great depth. We're extraordinarily lucky because unlike most Indian tribes, there's an awful lot about Sora. There's more than any other single group about traditional Sora practices. All of this means that you have a sacrifice that's offered once a person dies. You continue doing sacrifices for three years, and you especially at the third year anniversary, a stone is planted in memory of that person. Eventually, the spirit of the ancestor becomes a protector, and the next child born after the ancestor dies oftentimes receives that ancestor's name. And in some ways, they're an, an Incarnation of them, a partial incarnation, if you will. But that spirit of the ancestor in the underworld continues to evolve. Eventually, it goes from this class of spirit that was something that was really dangerous that makes you sick to something that nourishes your crops. In the very last stage of life, they turn into butterflies and then they truly die in the afterlife. That's the end of the death of the dead. So, that sounds like an amazing system. How is that implemented? Well, Soras would sacrifice buffaloes in these sacrifices to satiate the dead and in honor of the dead. And if you're in the highlands, buffaloes are extraordinarily costly because they're from the lowlands. And what developed then is you had middlemen, pano-caste traders, who many of them, by the way, eventually became Christian, but these Pano caste traders, caste social division in India, of course, mm-hmm. would give high-interest loans. So in a place like Mudaguda, what happened was they would keep people in perpetual debt bondage, mortgaged out for potentially generations. So an ancestor would die, and that would potentially throw the whole family now on the mercy of, in terms of these traders, who would then be the intermediaries between the Sora and the Valleys, and the flow of commerce. They would sell their vegetables, they whatever they would raise. They would get, procure the buffalo, and Sora found themselves, the average Sora person, in this kind of condition of unmitigating humiliation over and over and over again. What comes with Indian independence, though, is that there is this feeling of liberation that happens among sora who start working elsewhere in Assam in the tea fields and there are laws against debt bondage that are passed and sora begin converting to christianity and in christianity what it offers them is a religion that offers protection but without the sacrifice of buffaloes and it gives them a way around then a finding health and well-being for their families, but without having to go into this immense debt. It isn't an overnight thing. It happens very slowly. If you look at Indian census data from like the 1920s, virtually no Sora are Christian. But by the time we get to the 1940s and 50s, Canadian Baptists have made significant inroads into some Sora villages where they're becoming Christian. In the late 1950s, Sora, who are Baptist come into the area of Mutaguda village and begin preaching with very little effect. But it's the first contact with Christianity. Then when missionaries attached to our church who are Sora, who associates, this is Junish Raika. Junish is a very common Sora last name. It means basically ordinary man. Uh, but Rika, who is with G.S. Chala, who is sponsored at that point by the RLDS church, Charles Neff is someone that has ordained him. When they begin sharing, there are then the village leaders, Jacob Gamanga's father, Jacob Gamanga is now in his late 60s, early 70s, decides the village should become Christian. And Gamanga means rich man. Uh, Gamangas were the folks that the British tasked with collecting taxes. Mm-hmm. And they were like the head people in villages. So it's this is very much a colonial creation. So it's not like there's this people that are... That you know, time has not touched. These are people who have had been enmeshed in colonial systems for a very long time. But the difference is that now a democratic nation state with new kinds of technologies is coming into their area, and now they're seeing a way in which getting around their old relationships, this kind of feudal relationship of hierarchies of castes, they can do that through Christianity. So, Mudiguda village is not typical of sora conversions it's unusual in the sense the whole village converts what usually happened would be one family would convert and then two families and three families then in a decade the whole village was converted as they saw that well this religion let's try it out let's see what it's like what does it do and i think the initial kind of appeal of christianity is that it gives people a way of again finding health and well-being without needing to resort to sacrifice and without resorting to loans. It also gives them the possibility of literacy. The Bariks, the pano barracks or the middlemen, control literacy. And they control everything in terms of loans, uh, property deeds, all of those things Sora have no access to. When missionaries show up, they promise to teach young people Oriya, the state language, which Sora is not the state language. And they do. Young people who become preachers who are basically lay leaders, uh, have a rudimentary education in the Bible. Uh, so and there's a health clinic established. So there are different kinds of things which the mission promotes and offers that Sora find very appealing. And David,
1: uh, uh, David I want to interject here just, just for a minute because I'm wanting to address something that I think our listeners might be thinking at this moment. Sure. Oftentimes, especially in the United States, when we talk about conversion, when we talk about people becoming Christian or joining community of Christ, we have this idea that it is because they've had a spiritual conversion where they now believe Jesus Christ is their Savior, and that's why they convert. And then after conversion, other things happen. So when people hear... Mm -hmm. Christianity offers a religion without the issue of uh, uh, generational indebtedness, without the bondage to these uh, middlemen practitioners who have the keys to all things from health to literacy to financial identity. People can sometimes consider that a lesser reason to convert. And so I wanted to bring that up and point out that what you are describing is the same conversion of the early Christians who converted from Judaism. It's the same conversion of the early Christians as Christianity spread out of Jerusalem into the rest of the Roman Empire. People convert were converted and still do convert to Christianity because of that sense of liberation and hope that is tangible. And that's what you're describing, is tangible liberation. I, I want to make sure our, re, our listeners hear it in that context.
2: That's really helpful. The Sora that I interviewed in 2014 and these were all people now in their 60s or older. They definitely articulated, too, that there was accepting Jesus. And they would talk about it in those terms, almost in evangelical-like terms. But then we've got to be careful because they're not individuals. They're in families. They're meshed in communities. That's something really different in terms of what we're seeing as kind of mass conversion. They would talk about Jesus and accepting Jesus' blood. And there's some but there's some really interesting kinds of resonances with other Sora beliefs about different Sora words that means redemption that happens in this process of sacrifice uh, with buffaloes. So there's a message which they get about Jesus and blood and redemption, which they're hearing, which is really important to them. And they'll use the language when I accept Jesus as my savior. They, they say that language
1: mm-hmm.
2: when they talk about their conversion. But they also say, but I also, there were these things in my life that were happening. I had mortgaged everything. I was poor i was i was in this condition of poverty and i thought well these people aren't in that condition what if i try this and i found that when i accepted jesus that my life was better so that was a very common story that i heard mm-hmm. there's lots of Sora stories that do it, you, we can't separate the two of saying there's this spiritual suffer from the material and i think at the heart of the restoration in its best forms it, it doesn't ever do that mm-hmm. um But definitely the experience of these folks when they converted the spiritual material, it doesn't make sense to to separate them. Um, So they're they're not necessarily in a position of privilege where everything in life is, they they can just think about how I feel about things. Uh, I feel about things matters, but it's more than that. Uh, There's a sense of like, well, how will my life flourish? And that means in every way. When your average lifespan is 30 years old, this is a very different situation, and that's the average lifespan of a Sora person in the 1960s. We've got to be cautious about seeing this as that, there's a real, that one is a real conversion experience and one isn't. And there's a further reason why we need to be really cautious about this. We start inscribing the dynamics that actually persecute Sora, and this is how this happens. The Indian nation-state passes anti-conversion laws in the 1960s, that has a notion that missionaries are forcing people to convert by allurements, for material means, for other things, and and saying, and therefore, that's not real. They take a British version about what conversion really should be about, ideas, they inscribe that, and then they punish people, then, who convert, in the sense of, like, they can be harassed by the police. Can they be convicted? No, but they definitely can be questioned by the police, is your conversion legitimate? And that's still in the books today in Odisha or Orissa. So it's a way in which the state that has a Hindu majority is able to try to control these tribal populations who are this group that has been marginalized by the state forever by British and then later by the Indian nation state. If we look at the kinds of categories of difference that affect probably our listening audience in America, people automatically think about race as being this kind of category of difference that's been inscribed by economic and other kinds of discourses that perpetuates inequality in America over and over again. In India, it's caste and tribal divisions of how that has perpetuated inequality over and over again. And the same kinds of prejudices that you would think of in America around race are also around tribal identity and caste identity in India. And it certainly was the case in the 1960s and 70s. Tribal peoples were seen as dirty they were seen as uneducated, as backwards. That language is still present. Sora and others are asserting, no, we are not that. And they're also rejecting the Hinduism of the state by becoming Christian. So there's a lot of different things that are happening there. But this is a liberationist theology. Even if it is sometimes expressed in what we would read as almost evangelical-like terms, it has a liberationist kinds of ends to it. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you for, the, for that. Again, our tradition of restoration is wholeness and reconciliation and healing. And that's what liberation, what that is in both tangible and spiritual ways. Mm-hmm. So with the Sora and the Kui, these ST classifications um, that you have described um, people may be familiar with those terms from an anthropology class or a sociology class. I know that's the first time I encountered that, um those two tribal terms. And why are these tribes, Sora and Kui, of such interest in the broader picture of anthropology and sociology? What is it about these two tribes?
2: In terms of, in particular, the anthropological study of the Sora, it happens by something of an accident of why they make it into anthropology textbooks, even in the 1960s and 70s. And that's because a uh, former British Anglican priest turned agnostic, Verrier Elwyn, uh, becomes a tribal enthusiast. And he stays on after independence and he becomes very much involved in advocacy for tribes in India and with the Indian government, and he writes. And he marries two different women, and they're both Sora at different times. but So he has Sora wives, and he does a famous study, The Religion of an Indian Tribe in the late 50s, published by Oxford University Press. He's an amateur anthropologist, but it is the first major, like extensive study of an Indian tribe. And then you have... A person reading that, Pierre Svitebsky, who follows up and then he does field work in the 1970s on the Sora. They're about 20 miles south of where our church members live in a different area that's at the same time as the story as I'm talking about is basically going on. And then he publishes in the 90s. He follows up with a book in 2017, almost by accident, but anthropologists sometimes will revisit earlier studies to see, well, what's changed or did this anthropologist get it right? And that's what the Tapsky does. Anthropologists forever, the way one of the kind of founding kinds of ideas of anthropology was to study something different than whatever you are. That's changed in the last 30 years. And the critique is that it had a colonial agenda. It was as just as a uh, colonizing powers went out and extracted resources from far places. So did anthropologists go out and extract knowledge from far places. It also develops out of that a notions, of uh, cultural relativism, which is intended to fight certain kinds of hierarchical tendencies that colonialism creates as well, about hierarchies of races. Cultural relativism fights against that, actually. So it's, it's a mixed kind of thing. Of just like Christian missions are mixed things, they're not just one thing or another. They're many things. But anthropologists have that traditional emphasis on what is different. And especially trying to think about what societies are different as then a comparison that all humans aren't the same. So how do people organize themselves differently? So-called primitive societies of the early 20th century, that was a focus of a lot of anthropology as a way of critiquing Western modernity. Today, most scholars are uncomfortable with the idea of calling other groups primitive, Well all scholars that I know are. But that's how that came to be in the first place.
1: So all of this is happening in the same time period, as the church is exploring or expanding globally whether it's Africa subcontinent, other places and so those that's in the air if you will it's, it's part of the broader global dialogue which would have an effect on how people hear what is happening with the church. So we're not hearing it in um, in a vacuum we're hearing it as part of this more global conversation which has to have had an effect on how church members, learned and heard about the expansion of the church in the tribal areas in India. Um, what happened with that? How did that begin to be received by uh, the body of the church?
2: A few different cross currents that come together to uh, create conflict in the North America, primarily North American community Christ in the 1960s and 70s, but also affect church members elsewhere in like Australia, UK, French Polynesia, et cetera, where we have substantial membership by the 1960s. By 1960, the church is now calling itself the World Church. The World Conference comes into being, and that's more aspirational than real at the time, but it reflects an aspiration to be not simply an American church, and that's the, the language which is being used. Members thinking of themselves as global citizens, and trying to emphasize that language and becoming that. And it re- it comes at the same time that you have all these decolonization movements of the 1950s and 60s across the world in which former nation states that were colonies are becoming independent. And people are critiquing what's wrong with colonialism. People now, it's not just early 20th century people like Vladimir Lenin, who makes the first substantial critique of imperialism. You have then people across the world and saying, hmm, maybe this system really was more about dominating other people. There's a critique that begins in Christian missions in the 1920s and 30s among what we now call mainline Protestants, that by the 1960s is widely adopted by mainline Protestant denominations, where mission is increasingly not simply going out to preach a gospel, but Is making a humanitarian turn it's been doing that for a very long time but it becomes much more explicit along with that it's the indigenous term the indigenous turn means that across the board Methodists Episcopalians Congregationalists and others are looking to for a worldwide communion with indigenous leaders our church leaders as well as individuals who join the church in the 50s and 60s from other places are affected by this idea of decolonizing ideologies that they embrace. Also, they're affected by um, notions of, uncomfortably in some ways, of thinking about what are the different models for mission? Uh, what should we be embracing? And what wins out in the 60s is this model of indigenization that relies on local leaders to plant the church there in their own way that creates new opportunities and of course new problems like anything will create any any strategy has both new affordances and new drawbacks in terms of when it's implemented by any group so, so let's talk
1: um, a little bit David about the main drawback that that remains in the community memory of the church so um, that would be I think what Mark Shearer labels the proud marker of church identity. What do we do about polygamy? Oh yes. Because when we become indigenous, when we become decolonized, when we become missional in a way that is contextual to where we're planted, we encounter all kinds of um, contextualities, one of them being something that has been a struggle for us in a community of Christ in particular to deal with, and that is the issue of of polygamy. So this has been identified, I think, if I ask most people about the church expanding into India, this is what comes back.
2: What happens around this issue is extraordinarily complicated because there are nuances to it, which if we think about what happens in a political fight, nuances are always steamrolled. Um, and that's what happens here. This was a political fight in the American church in particular, and it has ripples in other churches too, but in particular in the American church around would the community of Christ become a fundamentalist-like, Protestant fundamentalist-like church, embrace a kind of conservative Christianity like what happened in the LDS church where you become biblical literalists, um, Or would it become like a mainline Protestant church? Uh, And that was what was rending denominations across America, whether talking about Methodists or Southern Baptists or, I mean, whatever denomination you want to talk about. The 60s to the 80s was that kind of sorting out a realignment, if you will, of American denominations. Southern Baptists were not fundamentalists in the 1960s, but they became so. And Methodists became more liberal, unevenly, but there's, definitely a leftward turn that happens. So there's these kinds of paths that churches are choosing. So polygamy and Sora polygamy becomes a lightning rod for these debates that are idioms for much deeper divisions in the American church. Um, So uh, traditionally, there is Sora polygamy. uh, Among Sora and other many tribal groups, including Kui, polygamy has to do with then getting more labor for someone to try to get ahead in a village. So usually it's limited to three wives typically, and sometimes just two. But uh, families that want to get ahead, a husband would take on more than one wife. Economy that is subsistence farming, and it was in the 60s, subsistence farming. We're talking about rice paddies in the Highlands, which is a very hard way to make a living, and then gathering other kinds of crops. From the bush or the forest in that economy this was one way of trying to accumulate wealth and local power so when sora become christian they are influenced deeply by baptist christianity canadian baptists that have become sora and canadian baptists are beginning to pull out by the 60s they're white missionaries it's increasingly becoming a sora baptist church that's independent and those sora baptists though are very anti polygamy. That's one of these markers. A marker of being Christian is you don't drink, you don't practice polygamy. Nevertheless, that's a hard transition for your average Sora village to do. Um, in the 1960s, members of our church uh, who affiliate with our church in the highlands of Odisha, and you can really draw a line between where our church is and where the Sora Baptists are. Um, the, there are no Baptists in our region. And there are no members of our church in this Baptist region. Um, do they look a lot alike? They do. And do they kind of agree a lot? Yeah, they do. Ideologically, they do. Theologically, they agree. Um, but they are separate. They have different sponsoring institutions and different self-conscious identities. Nevertheless, as they're trying to then expand the rule of the church, which comes by committees uh, in villages. Uh, and a church committee enforces church discipline, it's really hard for that church committee to enforce discipline around polygamy. Now, that's the local story on the ground of Sora Christians. Enter in American missionaries who are there for only a period of a couple weeks at a time, maybe at most three times a year, like Charles Neff. They are sincere in terms of trying to understand the situation, You can't understand local dynamics, though, by just being there for a couple weeks at a time, a few times a year. They slowly get a notion of that, but they do understand this is a local issue, and they wonder what should be the policy. So, our LDS church is a top down church at the time, and so policy has to come from the top for the church, even when you embrace indigenization. So, there's an uneven embrace of indigenization. So, the apostles discuss the policy, and they consult other churches in the region. They write to Methodists and Baptists and Seventh-day Adventists. Those letters are in the archives. They read anthropologists trying to understand uh, different forms of polygyny, or which is a man having more than one wife. They eventually come to what they think is a compromise, where they say, okay, if we say you have to give up your wives after you're baptized, suddenly you have women who no longer have any economic protection. And they would have to then resort to other kinds of economic gain for their families, which would mean prostitution. And it would be devastating to those families. So they say that's unreasonable. So what they're, they implement then is a policy that they see as, okay, once you're baptized, you keep, if you're a man, you keep your wives. And women who are in political relationships can be baptized, but you don't take on more wives into that family and that's the way it is and eventually then polygamy will no longer be a social thing within this society on the ground in Soreland, it's implemented i think people on the ground see it as a solution that they came up with and i think they were already going to do it whether or not the church had a policy on it or not okay. so it's kind of almost like the american church taking too much credit for it uh, they already had these values <laughs> that they were going to implement this. And they had very harsh kinds of implementation of it too, in which uh, you're a polygamist, you're excommunicated. But excommunication basically meant that you couldn't come into the church building. You could listen at the window or on the the literal periphery to the services. So, but you couldn't take communion. So that was what excommunication looked like. And in a village society, that's real. And they were pretty adamant about That's the Bible says no polygamy is what Sadanga Kamanga told me. He was the church committee on the ground in a village that had a village leader who was a polygamist. And he fought three years on this to try to get a change in policy. And finally they did in terms of like regularizing that where it was more or less the case. Well, okay. That's what's happening on the ground in Sora land. And Sora land is actually how uh, they refer to it. So in that area. So in America, Once people begin hearing about this policy, they're like shocked. Like, what do you mean? There are church members that are polygamous? And there's a lot of soul searching. What does this mean for a church to have polygamous church members? And it becomes really a lightning issue of where do you come down on? Whose side are you? There's a muddled middle, of course. But then there are these polarities of folks that see the future of the church is different from the church identity as a global church and they advocate for it in that language being a global people means that we have to take into account differences across the church uh, to be a church that isn't just an American church and there are people who have different kinds of reasoning in the middle that may or may not support it then you have the folks who are becoming self-conscious fundamentalists like the late Richard Price who was a restorationist publisher at the time he isn't but he becomes one and he is consuming Protestant fundamentalist literature at the time. It's rather astounding when you see how many references he makes to Protestant fundamentalists in his actual literature. But he basically makes the argument that the liberals or the new positionists—he's calling them the new the position papers, the, the seminars that came out in the nineteen sixties—the new positionists, he says say that we're depriving the Soras of their culture and forcing on them our American culture, but they're confusing American culture with the gospel. The gospel's culture is different. Price makes this forceful argument that church leaders are selling out the restored gospel. And this spills over into the conference debates in 1970 and 72 that are very contentious around this issue, where finally you have Wallace W. Smith issuing a revelation, Shoot, it's so a section 150 or
0: 151. It's
2: 150. I, 150. I, lu-
0: I looked it up this morning.
2: <laughs> Excellent. Which basically allows for the apostolic policy to remain in place. And it's when you read it, it's, it's very tepid language, actually. It's actually even conservative language. And it had been edited a bit by Morris Draper and uh, Dwayne Cooey. Uh, Mark Shear in his third volume kind of documents some of that. Uh, they went back and forth with Wallace, who himself struggled with this issue mightily. And in the end, it uh, affirms the apostolic policy, and it's that way is kind of a victory for those, which is now increasingly becoming d- divided factions. But the faction that supports this new kind of way of being a church, they win, sort of. Mm-hmm. In the 1970s, you see it's something that's still an issue where now church leaders are trying to justify, well, why is expansion into the world good? You can see that in Herald articles where they're trying to make that case for why it's a good thing for the church. Um, And then there's blowback of people saying, I wish we'd never gone to India. I think that wish is a bit, looking back, it's limited in the sense of these were not simply about issues of global expansion. These were issues about how America was changing in the 60s and 70s. And the church would have changed no matter what. It's just a question of how it would have changed. Would it have become like the Southern Baptist Convention? Would it have become more like, as it did, like the United Church of Christ? It's not like it it wasn't going to be the same thing. It wasn't the same church in 1950 as it was in 1910, as it was in 1860, as it was in 1830. The church is always going to have to change, whether or not it's self-conscious of that change. And being self-conscious of the change is sometimes very, very painful when you're aware of it.
1: Going through it. So you you mentioned that a, a question at the time would have been, is this a good thing? And so I would ask you, was this a good thing? Was global expansion a good thing? How has it shaped and formed us in ways that have moved us uh, closer to being to being a people who experience God's presence and purpose in the world. What we would have, when I was a kid, called being a Zionic people, being a people who live that kind of idea in the world.
2: I think the very beginning part of the question is always about who is the us. And what this does is it widens the us. And it widens what uh, what people think of as the us. A person in Mutaguda Village does see themselves connected with someone in Independence, Missouri. Maybe it's a distant connection, and maybe it's more of a global imaginary, if you will. If you think about nation-states are imaginaries, uh, imagined relationships of affinity. If you're an American, you imagine yourself having affinity with someone else that's an American. It's, it's an imagined thing, right? So churches also provide that, of a new horizon. Churches cross these national borders. I think that can be a good thing and so far that it relativizes the violent tendencies that can come with nationalism so and nationalism is this great thing to provide solidarity with people but it also becomes this thing that the 20th century has shown out justifies all kinds of exclusion and an extraordinary amount of violence so Insofar as churches connect people in distant places and give them different forms of affinity where they can be connected both to something local and beyond themselves, I think that is a good thing uh, in the end. I'm very comfortable advocating for that in that way. There's a really interesting argument that David Hollinger makes in a book called Protestants Abroad that came out last year. And Hollinger looks at Protestant missions in the early 20th century And the short part of his argument is this. Protestants go abroad, he says, thinking they're going to change the world. What they change instead is themselves. They change America. And he kind of documents how missions and missionaries, when they come back, come with a different understanding of themselves and the world, and at least in the mainline kinds of manifestations of this. He doesn't argue this for fundamentalists who go abroad, but he does argue this for the mainliners they begin arguing for new forms of citizenship and affinity in which suddenly China isn't this place in which people are at a lower evolutionary scale. They're people just like you. And Pearl S. Buck is a great example of this. Her novel, The Good Earth in the 1930s, she's this daughter of missionaries, changes how Americans think about China and about people who are Chinese. So he makes this argument that It is one vector in American culture for the creation of forms of liberalization in a sense of of advocating against forms of hierarchy based upon race and nationality. It's not the only vector um, force that does that, but he says it is an unusually strong one. And he calls that the boomerang effect, where you throw the boomerang, it comes back. Um, So the missionaries went out and they came back. But... In some ways, the analogy doesn't quite work because unless you take the boomerang, you catch it, then it affects your hand. I don't know, but I mean, the point <laughs> is they change something at home, and I think that we're seeing that in our church. Forty years after that, effects happening in like what we call the mainline Protestant churches, the, the old line really is what they are—the 19th-century traditional denominations: the Baptists, the, Baptist, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, the Congregationalists. Um, the the versions of those churches that embrace mainland protestantism they are profoundly affected by missions in this way and i think you can see that probably most clearly with the united methodists actually that we track with very closely in this era mm-hmm. uh, things that happen in the methodist church ideologically or i should say theologically happen in our churches a similar kind of time in how we conceive of missions and the effects that has on both methodist identity and uh, effects has an RLDS, or Community Christ Identity.
0: Um,
2: so, yeah, uh, it, it does definitely change the church. Now, here's the question, though. Do these new relationships, this is the harder question, give rise to a new kind of imperial relationship, uh, neo-imperialism? And there's the hard part of thinking about Lutherans, uh, in Minnesota and Madagascar, once had these missionary relationships that were colonial. By the 1970s, they tried to change those relationships, revalue them. Is it an afterlife to those colonial relationships? I mean, we don't have colonies in the same way in the RLDS church. We're not involved in colonial administrations for the most part. There's a few exceptions, but um, you can say Native North America, okay? Um, But uh, nevertheless, are we kind of like on the end of that where these are simply the West that has all the economic power is still in these kinds of like um, client patron relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, it's It's a difficult question that all humanitarian organizations in the West face because American churches, whether they're Catholic or Methodist or whatever, are the wealthiest churches in Christianity. The American Catholic Church has more resources than any part of the Catholic Church. That's the case with any part of a denomination. American churches export an enormous amount of aid to the global South um, in either direct aid or other kinds of forms of programs. So it becomes complicated. It's something we have to think about in a very self-searching way, in a self-conscious way. The good thing is, I think almost all christian groups that i know of including evangelical churches today are really trying to be thoughtful about this and aware of these power imbalances and relationships so it's not good enough to simply say i see you as a sister in christ or a brother in christ there's also other kinds of powers that comes through financial ledgers there's the other side of that of what does that mean and you could say that for sora they saw the American church in the 70s as something that was helping them with aid. And they did. And that was important. That was really important to them. And I think they would have no problem with that because in some ways, the nation state was not going to help them. Not in some ways, it didn't. Um, So it gave them a new avenue for a kind of social economic mobility that was very limited, but it offered them something more than simply... Uh, participation in having uh, to the nation-state with public schools that were terrible. Teachers coming once a week to teach the new schools, as opposed to the mission school, where there were good teachers. It offered them promise of, like, literacy, uh, short-term loans, things like that, which they really used to help pull themselves out of relationships that they saw as exploitative. I love this other side of it, too. Uh, we can think about, oh, what are these relationships like in the West? The other side is like, well, what about those on the other side of these relationships? What do they think about these relationships? And that adds another kind of complication to this. I'm thinking more about that right now, but that's a very complicated part of becoming a global church as well.
1: That kind of self-reflection as a body, as a community. Another um, aspect of, I I hate to use the word power, but uh, hierarchy or influence in the church is through leadership. Yes, And we have become, over the past several decades, more and more diverse in the leading quorums and orders of the church. And India is represented and has been represented on the Council of Presidents of 70, first Sam Kumar, Mm -hmm. at the current moment by Amson Malik, who is from Odisha, which you have been uh, talking about. Did you and have you done an oral history with Amson?
2: I have. Um, So I've been talking mainly about the Sora, but the Sora and the Kui live in approximately the same era. It's like living in Jackson County and living in Johnson County, Missouri in Kansas. So I mean, those folks are from Independence. That makes sense. But if you're not from Independence, doesn't. So (laughs) I mean, it's like it's one county over, basically. Okay. uh, Majority people are Sora. The majority of people are quee or Kond. Kond isn't always a term people. It depends on who's using it, but all the church members that I know use quee as their tribal identifier. So they have a very similar relationship. Soros today, about 75% of them are Christian. Quee today, only about 7% are. Being a Christian to be quee, and that happens mainly in the 1980s is when converts happen, is to be a bit more marginal in a quee community. And... Going certainly back to the idea of leadership, one of the disadvantages of our indigenization model was that, think about the old relationship where you had Sora and in the hills and the valleys and these intermediaries that controlled language. The disadvantage that we had in our relationship with indigenization is oftentimes we relied upon one or two people who had um, who could speak English because our missionaries that were Euro-Americans or... Uh, Britons or Australians didn't learn Sora um, and they were not there long enough because they had, their portfolio was huge. and so They were everywhere in Asia, in general not just India. That resulted in concentrating a lot of power in the hands of a very few people that then were the intermediaries of funds for development projects and informed people what was going on. That of course had problems. Finding People, I mean, that did create problems. G.S. Chawla and then other folks that became leaders afterwards. Inevitably, there were some problems in the 70s and 80s. While there was a bottleneck and problem there, at the local level, it was all communities have their own problems, but the Sora Church had a life of its own, too, and quite separate from those kinds of like administrative problems, which did affect them at times. Um, so... There's, we could focus on, and I, I could tell you all kinds of stories about those administrative problems, without ignoring that there's an entire church life, thousands of people going on as well, where these problems are part of their world, almost thinking about people in the 70s who hear about things at World Conference, they're, they're like, I'm not sure about that kind of stuff, but they still have church lives beyond that too. At least that did create new problems, relying on a few people. Having said that, we now have church members. Amson is the result of us. He's a second, well, I mean, in some ways he's a first-generation church member, but it's basically his his wife, Rashmi, her parents were Baptist, and they were Baptist con, converts. Yeah, that's sure. So she's second generation. Amson was very young when he became Christian. So he's almost like he's growing up basically in a world shaped by the church. Uh, so he isn't in this traditional village that does sacrifices to the goddess who is the earth Um, and that's not his world he goes to the church school at Gumi and goes through that in terms of his what we call elementary school so he he is born in a church culture if you will and that makes a difference too uh, of that's the community Christ is the church he's known all his life Uh, so that adds a different kind of connection to the movement as opposed to G.S. Chawla, who's probably affiliated with some Pentecostal groups as well at the same time as he's affiliated with our group. <laughs> so um, that's different as well.
1: And we hear that kind of a story quite often and, yeah. um, and have, have lived through that. So I have a brief story about Amson that I wanted to share with you. That Amson and Mosia came to visit Oregon And my husband and I took them to a small museum that is right on the edge of the Columbia River there in Oregon. And it had exhibits of indigenous people hunting and and life-size exhibits of fishing with spears and hunting with bow and arrow, that kind of thing. And Amson would look at them and he'd say, that's that's how I hunt. That's how I grew up hunting with very primitive bow and arrow and, and the loincloth and the whole thing. And we would go on and look at the next thing. And all of a sudden, Masia notices that Amson is humming or singing along with the music, the background music in the in the museum. He's singing along with it, kind of humming and then singing and humming, kind of quietly. And Masia asked him, "Do you know the song?" And Amson said, "Oh yes, it's a." song from my village and he sang a little bit of it along with what was being played well it was the Yakima tribe which is a Mm -hmm. tribe there along the Columbia River and it was some uh, songs tribal songs and music that they had recorded for the museum and was played in the background and Amson said uh, the words are a little bit different but it's the same song and then he went on humming and singing the song as we went through the rest of the museum So for me, that was this wonderful moment of, I don't know, interconnectedness, right? Mm -hmm. Where we find these weird strains, which we can try to to, uh, factualize and and go back and dig and find out why this is, or we could just say, oh, what a wonderful, interesting kind of weird occurrence. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I still think about that when he was out here in that museum. So he does have a wonderful story, as does Rashmi. I'm hoping to get him here, uh, he and Rashmi, on Project Zion at some point and sharing a little bit about that. David, you have shared so much that I just want to go off on all these tangents now with you, and those will have to be, those will have to be other interviews, especially when we begin to look at the cycles of history and nationalism and how they affect church life. I think is a relevant topic that we might want to explore later on, which would make a great interview. And I have some wonderful quotes from you. So thank you. They'll be peppered throughout the next class that I teach on community of Christ identity and history. But I think one of my favorites is that when we begin to talk about the church expanding into nations outside of North America, and particularly outside of our historical uh, makeup of Great Britain and the North American continent and French Polynesia, that it widens the definition of us. Love that quote. So Mm -hmm. thank you um, so much for that. Are there any last things you would like to share with us about what you uh, think about and how this expansion into India has changed and continues to change and shape that in the life of the church together. Well, I
2: guess I just have to end by saying that I think for folks in the church in India today, we're seeing an upsurge of ethno-nationalism across the world. And we see that in the U.S., we see that in Western Europe and Eastern Europe, we see that in the Philippines, we see that in so many places, and that's also true in India. Today, the dynamics in India are such that If you're a Muslim or if you're a Christian, you become kind of like the other. And there's a lot of very difficult things that Muslims and Christians in India today face. Um, And I think it's good to at least be aware of that. And I think that when we look outside of, say, if we're from the U.S., of our own political situation and look at the dynamics of majority and minority populations elsewhere. And we, when we can identify with, well, there's a minority population in India that's feeling some very bad effects of this ethno-nationalism, that are people that are part of us, that should also make us think about, well, what's happening in my own nation state with these kinds of dynamics of majority and minority populations and who is the us? Um, how big how big is that us? I think there's something that is helpful when we do that. And I think that can transcend simply divisions too of people that see themselves as progressive or conservative. Studies have shown in the U.S. that folks who are more involved in churches in the United States are much less comfortable with racist ideas I think there have, there's part of that is an idea about well they see evangelism as important, but I think that if, whether or not that's us, oh, I can see that we too can see by reflecting on something else how that how we might be enmeshed in dynamics that are hurting other people too, and then to think about well how do we want to change the local as we reflect on what's global as well.
1: Thank you. I want to um, extend our gracious thanks and immense thanks, David, for your um, inaugural visit on Project Zion. (laughs) Hopefully not um, your last. Wish you many blessings on your school year, as that is convening for you at this time of the year. And I want to encourage our listeners that you can learn more about church history from the historian team, and you can reach David and the others on the team at historian at theofchrist.org. You can also find David's book on the church in India at the Herald site, Herald Publishing, Community of Christ, publishing house. And you can look up the other books that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Mormonism, the basics, and the Kirtland Temple, the biography of a shared Mormon sacred place. So thank you again, David, Professor, Doctor, <laughs> and thank you uh, to our listeners for participating with us today. This has been Cup of Joe, part of the Project Zion podcast. I'm Karen Peter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to Project Zion podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a 5-star rating. Project Zion podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.